I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. He just doesn't understand what I really need. I feel so lonely. God, I need a way out of this. I can't handle the pressure anymore. Is this all that life is? Heaven Hears, sits our Christmas series for this season, and we're going to be walking through over the next few weeks together the great Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And that hymn is written out of a place of longing. It's written out of a place of anticipation. It's written out of a place of hope. And this season, we want to explore the God who answers that prayer, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I just want to, before we jump in, I'm going to pray in just a moment. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can start turning there. But I just want to say thank you to the many people who came yesterday, to Eric and Carolyn and Aaron, who did a great job decorating um, our stage, and and to Keijo Kazava, who did a wonderful job decorating the foyer. Can we just say thank you to them? Oh, it looks great, and I love this time of year. Who's with me? Who loves Christmas? Amen. Me too. Me too. Let's pray, and we're going to jump in. Father, thank you for this time that we have together today. And our hope and our prayer would be that you would reveal once again the wondrous mystery of you, King of kings and Lord of lords, Father, Son, Spirit, pursuing your creation by becoming one of us. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. In the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nahashan, and Nahashan the father of Salmon, and not a fish, a man, and Salmon the father of Boaz, and Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife, the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jechoniah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jechoniah, the father of 
Shealtiel, and I practiced these. I did. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mahatan, and Mahatan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So, thank you. So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations generations 41 names a few of them i can even pronounce roughly 2000 years depending on whose math you use the time period that we can read in roughly a minute and a half encompasses 400 years of slavery 40 years of wandering dynasties that rise and fall Hopes that are fulfilled and hopes that are taken to the grave. 41 people included in this genealogy, they're not just names, they're stories. They're, they're real people. They're real people who lived real lives, and some of them were really, really great lives. And some of them were absolute disasters. I was struck as I read through this genealogy once again that this isn't just a list of names. This is an invitation into a story. I was telling one of my friends this week that I was studying these genealogies in Matthew. And Matthew, by the way, traces the genealogy of Jesus through his dad, Joseph. That's where he ends his gospel account of the genealogy of Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, traces his genealogy through Mary. That's why they look a little bit different. I was telling my friend, though, that I was reading this genealogy and studying it to, to preach a genealogy. And he told me that's a brave move. And I said, I know. I know. He told me that he hopped on Ancestry.com a, a few weeks ago and started to research his family tree. And, and he shared with me that that act of doing that was actually fairly addicting. And I looked at him and I said, a genealogy addicting. You need better hobbies, right? And so I went home, of course, after teasing him, I went home, hopped on Ancestry.com, signed up for a 14-day trial, and went into an ancestry coma. <laughs> Has anybody done this before? Okay, so you know, we'll start a recovery group. After I trace my lineage back to Adam and Eve, we can start a recovery group and we can share each other's pain. It's like a puzzle, though. And I, I'm just, you pull this thread in Ancestry.com, and you start to see the other names that you're attached to, and it's a little bit boring and monotonous at first, and then you start making these connections. And you're like, oh my goodness, these are my great-great-great-grandfathers or grandmothers, and I could trace my lineage back around to the 1500s, and it only took like 15 hours to do it. And I started to recognize, I think one of the things that we love about this is, one, it's, it's a puzzle that we have to sort of put together, but two, it's, it's a part of who we are. It's a part of our story. 
And I don't know a lot about the people that are in my family tree, but I do know that they influenced me. I know that when my great, 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 great grandparents came over from England or from Sweden or from Germany, I know that somehow their story of getting on that ship and coming over here somehow impacts my life today. I was reminded that the zeitgeist of our day is individualism. And we stand on our own two feet. And our story, when you ask somebody to tell you about themselves, they will tell you about themselves. They'll tell you what their resume looks like. They'll tell you the accomplishments that they've made. But if you were to ask somebody back in Jesus' day, tell me about yourself, what they would tell you is about their family. They'd unpack for you their family tree. If you were to ask Jesus who he was, he might say something to the effect of, I'm the son of Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. And I won't go through the whole thing again, I promise. But, and it's interesting because even back in Jesus's day, if this was sort of, a genealogy was sort of a resume, people were lying back on resumes even back in Jesus's day. I mean, Herod the Great, who was alive and ruling at the same time as Jesus, went to great extent to amend his public genealogy so that people wouldn't know that there were some sort of shady characters in his family tree. Some people who did some things that weren't all that upstanding, which is ironic if you know anything about Herod, that he's trying to protect his reputation, which wasn't exactly squeaky clean. He killed a few people here and there. But he went to great extent to try to say, this is who I am, and in doing so, amended his genealogy. What's interesting is that Matthew does the exact opposite when he tells us who Jesus is. It can just seem like a list of names, but Matthew has a purpose in writing this, in unpacking who Jesus is. If you have your Bible, look at the very first verse of the book of Matthew with me, because in this verse, you're going to start to see what Matthew's purpose is in writing this genealogy of Jesus's life. He says this, he says, in the book of genealogy, or you could actually translate this word better instead of genealogy, Genesis. In the book of, the, of Genesis of Jesus the Christ. He's, he's echoing back to Genesis chapter 1. He's saying, listen, listen, listen. I know that the beginning of the world is important, but the birth of the Messiah is a new beginning that's equally and arguably even more important than the birth of or the creation of the world. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of whom? David and the son of Abraham. Okay, so here's what Matthew wants to do. Matthew wants to connect this story of Jesus's birth to the two greatest promises that the people of Israel had. The first promise was the promise that was given to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic blessing. Will you say that with me? Abrahamic blessing. Yeah. It says this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, how many? All the families of the earth will be blessed. This was the hope of Israel. That in some way, some form, their little nation was going to be a blessing to every family across the globe. The second story that Jesus is connected to is the story of David. David was also given a promise. His promise was a little bit different. David was one of the kings of Israel. We'll talk about him in just a moment. But this is a promise God gives to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, parentheses, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, how long? Forever. See, here's the two promises that Jesus is connected to. He's connected to the promise that Israel would be a blessing to everyone. And he's connected to the promise that God, through his people, will reign forever. For everyone and forever. That's what Matthew wants to do as he unpacks this list of 41 names, 42 generations, a few thousand years. He wants you to know Jesus is for everyone and Jesus is forever. Matthew's a little bit unique in the way that he does his genealogy because he does his genealogy in in a way that many people in the ancient world would have created or would have presented a genealogy. Matthew's genealogy is done specifically so that you and I or people in an oral culture could remember what he was saying. So he divides it into parts. Listen to the way he presents this in Matthew chapter 1 verse 17. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation into exile in Babylon, how many generations? 14 generations. And 14 generations from exile to Messiah. Here's what Matthew wants you to know. There's a few turning points in this story. There's a few points where God steps in and where he recharged the course of Israel's history. See, he says first, This story starts with Abraham and God calling him out of Ur and into the land that he would give him. And it goes up, 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 up until we get to the promise that God would reign forever through his servant David. And that was a good day for the nation of Israel. That was a great season. And from there, it went down, down, down to exile. Notice, 14 generations, 14 generations. And this exile, if you have your own Bible, circle that word in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. Because really, they're carried off into exile in 586 by the Babylonians. The nation of Israel is taken, the temples destroyed, the people are put in chains and walked to this new city, this new town where everything is stripped away from them. But really, exile is simply living in a land apart from God. Exile is a motif that weaves its way throughout all of Scripture. 
From the very first time Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they are exiled. There is a distance between them and their creator who designed them, who loved them, who calls them. And the Christmas story is a story about a God who sees people in exile. A God who sees people in the pain of life. A God who sees people in the hurt of life. A God who sees people in their dryness, in their despair, in their hopelessness. And Christmas story is a God who sees people here in exile or in exile throughout as they're separated from him and says, I refuse to let you stay there. I want to win you back. I want to woo you home. And so this is the place that God meets us in exile. It's interesting. There's a number of ways that people will say this, but the most popular way that I've heard it floating around is this. See if you've ever heard this. God is too holy to be in the presence of sin. You heard that? The only problem I have with that is the Bible. Because in the garden, if you go back and you read Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. God is not like, oh man, I can't be near you. I couldn't possibly, I'm Mr. Clean, I couldn't possibly enter into this dirty situation. No, God is the one saying, where are you? Where are you? Come, come home. God is the one from the very beginning entering into the story of humanity's sin, of humanity's desperation, of humanity's longing, of humanity's exile and saying, I am a God who will chase you down in the midst of any and every situation. Nothing is too dark for me, he says. Nothing is too dirty for me. Nothing is beyond my scope, God says, of entering into your story. See, I think we've gotten it completely wrong and completely backwards. God is not the one running from us. We are the ones running from God. My friend who happened to write a book said it like this. He says, the gospel proclaims that our core problem is not that God can't stand to be in the presence of sin. It's that sin can't stand to be in the presence of God. Yes. And so the story continues. From exile, we see that God enters in. That's where Matthew chapter 1 verse 17 leads us from exile to Jesus. God is bringing humanity home through the work of the Messiah. And you see, will you look up at me for just a second? All of history. These 42 names and these 42, 41 names and 42 different stories. These generations upon generations. All of history is bathed in God's activity. It's more than just a list of names, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. It's a list of and an accounting of God's pursuit of you and I and brokenness and pain and exile and hurt. That's what it is. See, this genealogy is not just the story of Jesus. Catch this, catch this, catch this. 
It's the heartbeat of God. I will chase you down. And I will love you in the midst of your disobedience. And I will pursue you even when you run the other way. He says, I am entering into your story. Christmas doesn't just tell us the story of God. It informs us as to what God is like. And here's what we see. Christmas reminds us that history is the story of God's pursuit by grace of the entire human race. It's not just a story about a baby being born. It's a story of a God entering in. It's not just the story of a baby being born. It's a God who's saying, I want you to come home. And so as we pray throughout this season, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Matthew wants you to know, nations, here is your hope. Israel, here is your Messiah. But it's an answer to the age-old question of how we have relationship with God. It's an answer to that question that very few people would have expected. (laughs) Because if Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is Jesus' resume, (laughs) he's got some things on there that you would think would disqualify him from being the savior of the world. I mean, if you were just laying it out there and going, all right, here's my qualifications, here's why I could be the savior of the world, you and I, in our great wisdom, would look back at God and say, God, there's no way you save the world like that. Because there's some names in here and there's some stories in here that would make you blush. There's some things where you would read it and go, there's no way that could be a st- the part of the story of God. That story can't be in there. There's no way. God has to keep his distance from stuff like that. And yet, we see that Matthew goes out of his way to include some pretty shady characters. There's a lot of men that are shady characters in the story, but ladies... We're going to treat the women this morning because Matthew includes five women, if you include Mary, in his genealogy of Jesus. Five women and four of them, for all intents and purposes, should have been left out, especially since in this day and age of writing a genealogy like Matthew did, you didn't have to include women. In fact, most genealogies didn't. Luke's doesn't. There's a reason for that. But Matthew wants you to know that there's some women in Jesus' family tree, and there's some stories in Jesus' family tree, and the stories inform our view of the Messiah and his role in our life. Let me just give you three of them this morning. Oh, I I presented originally this nice, clean, up-and-to-the-right sort of flow from um, Abraham to David and then down and it was nice and level and even and then back up to Jesus and I just wanted to mention that life's never like that is it 
Like, your life isn't like that. My life's not like that. And this story isn't like that either. There's a lot of twists and turns. It looks way more like a roller coaster than it does like a ramp. Let me show you some of the twists and turns. It says this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by, say it with me, Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Tamar is one of those women that's mentioned in this genealogy. If you have your own Bible, will you circle her name? I I, want to give you the PG version of her story today. If you'd like the rated R version, it's in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was married to one of the sons of Judah. His name was Ur. Ur was really evil, really bad, and God killed him. Now, the tradition in that day was that you would marry your husband's brother if your husband passed away. And so Tamar did. She married Ur's brother, whose name was Onan. But Onan was also evil. And while he would have relations with his wife, here's where the PG comes in, relations with his wife, Tamar, he refused to get her pregnant. And so you can read about how that happens and why that happens. I wouldn't do it for your family devotional, but if you want to do it, (laughs) go ahead. Um, And so that was an evil thing by Onan, and so God kills Onan also. Merry Christmas, by the way. I mean, it's like, what a a joy in this story. And so Judah says to Tamar, hey, listen, you're a little bit of a liability to my family tree, okay? So I will give you my youngest and third and last son for marriage, but I just need some time to breathe here. I need some time to catch my breath. He needs to get a little bit older, and I need to make sure you're not going to kill him. Well, Tamar, because a woman got her worth through her children, decides, listen, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to get kids somehow, some way. So she dresses up like a prostitute. She goes and stands at the city gates. Her father-in-law, Judah, comes by, picks her up as a mistress, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant with not one, but two babies. Their names are (laughs) Perez and (laughs) Zerah. She has these two babies. Not exactly the story that you'd expect to find in the lineage of Jesus. Like Genesis chapter 38 has never been taught on a flannel graph, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) And yet, and yet when Jesus gives us his resume, when Matthew gives us Jesus' resume, he says this story is in that. This story of deception, the story of prostitution, this story of deceit and incest and immorality includes Jesus. I mean, I'm reading this going, you've got to be kidding me. There has to be a different way other than Perez. I mean, come on. And God says, no. That's part of the way that I work. I enter in. I think we can relate to Tamar a little bit. Not not one-to-one direct correlation. But I think we can relate to her because Tamar is in the situation where her life is desperate. Where her life is, she's at the end of her rope. 
And she doesn't think there's any other way out. And so what does she do? She takes the situation into her own hands. And in doing so, she actually turns her plight worse. Anybody been there? Where you were in a terrible situation and made a mistake and tried to sort of get yourself out of it and made a mistake and made it worse? I mean, it's this I Love Lucy clip, the famous clip of her working in the chocolate shop where she's popping chocolates into her mouth and then into her hat and eventually it's just out of control. I mean, that's Tamar's life. And yet, and yet, we see God writing her, not writing her off, ironically. God doesn't write Tamar off. He writes her in. He writes her into his story. As Martin Luther so beautifully put, oh, he says, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. And when he does that, he starts to bring meaning out of their mess. I don't know if you can relate to Tamar this morning. My guess is that you can't relate to her directly, but my guess is that you've been in a situation where you've thought, God, I don't know how you could continue to work in this. And God, I don't know how you're going to bring good out of this. And God, I've made this mistake. I've done this thing. I'm holding these kids, and I'm not sure the way that you're going to work your good in the midst of my pain. And what the Christmas story tells us is that heaven hears. Heaven hears when we cry out of the mess. And while Christmas doesn't say, God's going to clean up every mess, just trust in him. What the Christmas story does say is, God is not afraid to enter into any mess. There's nothing that's off of his charts. There's nothing he says that's too bad. There's no mess so dirty that God says, that God doesn't say, I will enter in. It doesn't mean he's going to make the bad business deal that you made because you were nervous. It doesn't mean he's going to make you earn a ton of money from it. It doesn't mean that he's going to heal every disease and every sickness this side of heaven. It does mean, though, That when we find ourselves in those situations where we go, God, I don't get it. From the inside out, the King of kings and the Lord of lords says, I will bring meaning from the mess. And the scriptures tell us really clearly, friends, really clearly, that God declares, (laughs) and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I used to read this and go, man, the things that have been done to me that are wrong, God's going to work in. And the brokenness of his world, he's going to work in. But what Tamar reminds us of is that even when it's our fault, God is still at work. That's awesome. Merry Christmas. He enters into this story. So what if... I mean, Tamar represents people that we are so scared of, doesn't she? I mean, people that have done immoral things, people have, the, <clears throat> have been to immoral places. What if this Christmas, in the same way God enters in, what if we started to pray, God, 
Give us the eyes to see the way that you might call us to enter in. Because as Tim Keller puts, the grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with his mercy. What if our lives started to reflect his? How might that change the world? Wow, this is jumpy this morning. Here's the way it continues. Next person. We're just going to sort of parachute in on a woman named Ruth. And salmon, remember, not the fish, by the father of Boaz, by Rahab, we don't have time this morning, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. This next woman who's included in Jesus' line was Rahab, and then we jump to Ruth. Let me give you just the Cliff Notes version of Ruth's life. Ruth is a Moabite. She's part of a group of people who are antagonistic towards Israel and the people of God, and they are God's enemies. Ruth is living in a land, and she meets a young man who's from Bethlehem. They fled. His family fled Bethlehem because there was a great famine in the land. Ruth and this man fall in love. They're married 10 years, and her husband dies. Around the same time, her husband's brother died too. Remember that loophole of how to get kids? If you didn't have any, you could marry the brother. Well, that's off the table too. And so Ruth is left with her sister-in-law and her mother-in-law. Just saying. Just saying. We could just close in prayer there for some of us, right? And so she has this decision, am I going to stay with Naomi, my mother-in-law, in my land, or am I going to go with her back to Bethlehem, the land that she's from, and am I going to stay with her? And Ruth, because of her devotion to Naomi, says, I'm going to stay with her, and I'm going to go with her, and I'm going to step into this place of unknown, and I've lost my husband, and now I'm going to lose my home, and I'm going to lose everything that I thought my life was going to be, and I'm going to step into the unknown and try to follow this God that I've heard about. It's an amazing story. But it's a story that's latent with brokenness and death and questions and uncertainties. And it's a story where Ruth eventually comes to marry a man named Boaz and she has a son who becomes the grandfather of King David. So you could go back and you could read Ruth's story. And here's what you would see, is that as the King of kings and the Lord of lords enters into our lives and enters into our loss, he starts to birth and bring about life. It's why Ruth's story is in here. It's why Ruth matters. In the in-between times in life, in the exile times in life, she continues to work hard. She continues to pursue God. She continues to pray, but she doesn't just sit in a room and pray. She gets out in the field and prays. And Ruth reminds us that in our loss and in our pain and in our disappointment, heaven hears. It hears the cry of every longing soul and is able Ruth's life declares us that in the unthinkable situations in life, God is able to birth unimaginable joy. Ruth also reminds us that God almost never works on our timeline. 
Anybody want to say amen? She thinks she has her life figured out. She thinks she knows exactly where she's going. And her life takes this massive, and it turns out to be this beautiful detour. But her timeline, her plan, her dream, everything is thrown out the window. You see, I think the hard thing about reading 2,000 years of history in one and a half minutes is that we read history, but we live in the ordinary We live in days, but we read about decades and centuries and millennia. And it's a lot harder to see God's faithfulness in the day than it is to see God's faithfulness in the decade. And so we read these stories and we see that God is weaving through these people and these failures and these hopes and these successes the message that while it may not be on our timeline, God will always keep his word. He will be good on his promises. I don't know about you, but for me, as I think about the holidays coming up and the one that we just came out of, loss is a theme for me. And my guess is it is for a lot of people in this room. Last week, many of you know, last week we celebrated the three-year anniversary of losing my mom. December 1st, 2013, she passed away. And every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, I'm reminded that there's an open seat at our table and that there's a vacant place in my heart. And I love that Ruth's story is in here, you guys. Because God didn't do it in an instant for Ruth. She did it over the course of a decade. She did it over the course of centuries. She did it over the course of millennia. But eventually, here's what he did. He spoke into the loss, life, and goodness. And one of the detours that Ruth's life takes leads her to the destiny that God had designed her to live into. And so I just want to throw out over your life that truth as well that sometimes the detours lead to the destiny. That God is at work even in those, even in the pain, even in the hardship. My dad wrote a song this week in memory of my mom, um, and the song is called, um, All That's Missing Is You. And I thought, wow, I bet, I bet there were seasons that Ruth could have sung that song. And yet, if you zoom out enough, you see God's faithfulness. One last story, and then we'll land the plane. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was, and just notice that Matthew in a genealogy does not need to include the title of David. But he does so because one of Matthew's main points in writing this genealogy is to link Jesus with David, who was the king of Israel, and Jesus, who is the king of the world. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, she has a name. We know her name. There's multiple chapters in the Bible about the wife of Uriah. So why in the world would Matthew not just say, by, the, by Bathsheba, that's her name. 
Most scholars think that Matthew is giving a not-so-subtle jab, not to Bathsheba, but to David. To David reminding us that David stole another man's wife. You may remember the story, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, that Bathsheba is bathing on a rooftop while her husband is off at war. Um, most people think Bathsheba is innocent in this. Um, I'd like to propose to you that, that maybe she knew that bathing on a rooftop might get her noticed by the king. Just going to throw it out there. But I don't think she's an innocent observer, all that to say. She's bathing naked on a rooftop. David the king sees her. David sends for her. Whether you want to say yes or no, your only option when the king sends for you is either to say yes or to die. And so she decides to say yes. She comes. She sleeps with David the king, gets impregnated by him. Her husband's away at war. That's an issue. David calls her husband back from war to have relations with his wife. This is a PG version. Have relations with his wife. He says, I could never have relations with my wife while people are off at war. David says, well, why don't you go back to war where, where you will die and I will then be vindicated. This child that we have together will be mine. That's the Cliff Notes, Spark Notes version. And so you have, out of this dysfunctional family of a deeply flawed man, adultery, murder, Deception, lies, and Jesus. It's not the resume we'd expect. It's not the story about God that we sometimes think we know. It's God saying, I'm so much bigger, and I'm so much better, and I'm at work in so many more places. And, and Bathsheba, even the shame that you carry, God can birth salvation out of. I'll just say that over you this morning, that the shame that you carry, God can birth salvation out of. And the consequences come in David and Bathsheba's life, but please don't mistake the consequences for God deserting them or God becoming silent in their life because he is at work and he is bringing forth life and hope and meaning out of the mess. Here's what we see. Here's what we see. Is that God remains faithful even in the midst of our failure. You guys, in, in the life of David, and in almost every single life in this story, here's what you can see. That Christmas, the story of the coming of the Messiah, is not a self-improvement plan. It's not, hey, this is how you can better your life. It's not 12 steps to a great marriage. It's, not, it's none of that. It's not about how we can become better. It's about how God pursues us in our junk, in our failures, in our loss, in our mess. That's what the story of Christmas is. It's God parachuting into the brokenness of his world with, as the angels declare, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news not good advice, good news of great joy that will be for whom? All people. 
See, Christmas is not a story that tells us we should live better lives. No. Christmas is a story that declares to us, Christ, the Savior, is born. And he's born into messes. And he's born into loss. And he's born into failure. And he's born into whatever situation you find yourself in today. And so along with the great, great hymn, we can pray. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom and bring back the captives of Israel who mourn in lonely exile here. And when Jesus the Messiah gathered his disciples around a table on the night that he was betrayed. And he took bread and he said, this is my body which I'm giving for you. And he took wine and he said, this is my blood which I'm going to shed and give for you. And doing that, what he's saying is, Israel, I'm bringing you home. I'm forgiving your sin. I'm inviting you back in. I'm parachuting into your story and I'm making a way by my own life given for you and my own blood shed for you. And as followers of Jesus, when we gather around this table, when we gather around this story, we're reminded that no mess is too dirty, that no loss is too strong, and that no failure is terminal but that Jesus the Messiah enters into it all. And in the song we sing, until, until the Son of God appears. And we come this morning to the table to celebrate. He has. He has come. Heaven has heard. And by faith, our story now is woven into his. And his story will never end. Let's pray. So Jesus, this morning, as we approach your table, And the cry of our heart is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, would you ransom us? Would you bring us back from wandering, from slavery, from the land? Would you bring us back to yourself? God, would you remind us today that you parachute into and you insert yourself into any story that by faith will receive you? As we come this morning, remind us of that King of kings and Lord of lords, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. If you're a follower,